It's Thursday, February 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. As you can probably tell from the ambient noise, we're not in the studio at Full Global Headquarters. We are hanging out at the Capitol Sheraton in Austin, Texas. Home of food trucks, great barbecue, great music. It is also the home of the award-winning writer and personal finance expert, Laura Adams, the host of the top-rated Money Girl podcast. So great to meet you. It's great to meet you, too. It's fun to put voices and faces <laughs> together. I've Absolutely. heard your voice for a long time. So. <laughs> Likewise. Um, I want to get into a couple of personal finance things that have been in the news lately, but I, I want to start with just sort of how you got started in all of this. Um, and let's, let's go way back. You, you grew up in South Carolina. What did your parents do? My parents have always been very entrepreneurial. Um, they've always owned businesses, multiple businesses, but they were primarily involved in the telecommunications business. So this is kind of a dying thing now, but an answering service was kind of a, a big deal back in the day. A lot of companies needed uh, somebody to answer phones off hours. And it, whether it's a plumber or a doctor or somebody who is looking for uh, management of, of their incoming calls, they had a business to manage that. And so they were kind of a, uh, one of the leading uh, answering service telecommunication companies um, in the little town where I grew up, which is Somerville, South Carolina, uh, right outside of Charleston. And so they were... Um, growing, developing that business. I mean, really my whole life, I remember that. So they have very entrepreneurial spirits and roots, and so did their parents. And so that's kind of the atmosphere that I, I grew up in. You go to college at University of the South? That's right. In Tennessee? Yes. What'd you study there? I studied something that you would probably never guess. I studied natural resources. I was a trees and rocks major, as really? they called it. Yes. <laughs> what did you think you were going to do with that degree? So my idea at that time was environmental law. So that was kind of a, a big career when I was uh, in school. And when I started studying dendrology, biology, chemistry, I really enjoyed it. I really didn't know for sure what I would do with it, but I was at the University of the South, which is a huge, beautiful campus. It's 10,000 acres on the Cumberland Plateau, and you couldn't imagine a better place to study natural resources. So labs out in the woods, taking hikes. Um, it was really uh, a fantastic place to study. So long story short, I get out of school and decide, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And this is not what I, this is not my path. So I really began at that point thinking about what were my kind of natural talents and abilities. And it always came back to finance. It always came back to math and numbers. And so I began working in finance jobs, just kind of low level accounting positions, um, then studying accounting, then eventually going back and getting an MBA. Um, and, and that's kind of where things took off for me at that point. I kind of made a major pivot into the personal finance world. And so, you know, the, I'm thinking about the combination of watching your parents building their business and then you starting in some jobs, um, eventually going to get your MBA. At that point, are you thinking, okay, I've, ex I've watched enough of what my parents have done. I've experienced enough and I've seen enough of how other people run their businesses. At that point, are you thinking, 
I, I may not know what it is, but I know I want to run my own business someday. Absolutely. Yeah, I do think that level of freedom, that level of control, also the level of risk. You know, you do have to be very comfortable with risk. All of those really resonated with me and just felt like a natural part of life. So, MBA, that's 2005. Um, I just learned this this morning. You started another podcast before... Money Girl. I did. So this what was, was that? 2007. Um, I started a show called, and I'm trying to even remember the name of it. You may remember. Um, <laughs> why can't I even remember the name of the show? MBA Working Girl. I started a show called MBA Working Girl. That was it. This was a long time ago. It was 12 years ago. Yeah. Didn't do it very long. I was. I had that show about six months before I was approached by the Quick and Dirty Tips Network to join their growing group of hosts. At that point, it was, I think, just one. Grammar Girl was, was the main and the original host and eventually the owner of that podcast network. Um, Mignong Fogarty, so I have a lot to uh, to thank her for in my career. But yes, yeah, so that got me into the world of podcasting. At that point, it was all about how do you podcast? How do you create an RSS feed? Uh, blogging, you know, all of these things were brand new to me in 2007. And it was so funny because I felt late to the game in podcasting in 2007. And I look back now and I think... That was just, you know, the seeds of it. Yeah. It was just beginning. But at that point, I really felt behind the, the eight ball. But that, that podcast was my sort of experiment in figuring it out. How do you do it technically? How do you create a show? How do you link it to blogging? And it was my way of kind of recording the types of topics that I really wanted to remember from my MBA. And so it was a combination of personal and corporate finance topics. And I quickly figured out that it was the, the personal topics that I liked the most. See, it's amazing to me because I, I've been to a, a couple of podcasting conferences and it, you meet all these different people and invariably it, at some point in the conversation, it's, you know, once you get beyond what show do you work on, that sort of thing, it's, well, when did you start? And um, we started our first podcast in early 2009, which, you know, on average, that's, that's still early to the game. And you're the first person I've met who's... <laughs> who's started well before we did. Um, do you even remember sort of like what was the first thought on the first show on the, the MBA Working Girl that made you think, okay, because that really was early days and it wasn't like a lot of people knew what podcasting was. Um, you really had to explain it to people and really for the first few years we were doing ours, we would still have to explain, no, this is what a podcast is. This is how you get it. Um, do you remember sort of like that first seed of an idea? Yeah. So I really thought about how do I give back to the community because I had been consuming podcasts since about 2005. I mean, like a mad person. I mean, I was subscribed to, open, there weren't that many shows, right. particularly in finance at that time. I was subscribed to probably over a hundred shows. And I was just like listening to this variety of content and thinking, how do I give back to this community? What can I do? And so um, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blog about my MBA experience 
okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Let's just turn it into audio and go from there. And it was really the the listener feedback that I got in those early days that kept me going because there was no reward, right? I mean, right. There, there, there was really no reason to be doing it. There were no sponsors. Right. There were no uh, monetary gains. It was really a hobby and thinking about, you know, what can I figure it out, A, and B, what what is my voice? What can I contribute? And so that's what I was really trying to figure out. So, obviously, the Money Girl podcast has grown exponentially. Um, you do a fair amount of speaking, that sort of thing. We were talking right before we started taping. Um, uh, you, in addition to sort of corporate uh, speeches that you give, you also speak to college students. What kind of questions do you get from college students? Because it it really does seem like uh, for for all of the education that students get in college, there really does seem to be some basic things about handling money that a lot of kids just never get. Yeah, I never got it either in high school or college. I really had to seek it out, and I was fascinated by it. I mean, I was one of these kids that was begging my parents for a checking account, you know, at age 14. I couldn't wait to have my own money and manage it. But I don't think everybody is like that. Obviously, there are a lot of kids that are kind of just muddling their way through. Parents are muddling their way through. So I think the questions that come up the most with college students is, you know, how a lot of them have very sort of um, idealistic ideas about investing. And, and you probably see this all the time. What can I invest in that's going to make me rich tomorrow? Right. You know, and, and so you kind of have to step back and lay the foundation for them um, and really figuring out things like, you know, sometimes it's just contributing small amounts of money over time. That's really the secret to wealth. There is no kind of golden bullet, you know, key that's going to unlock this, this world of wealth for you. So those fundamental basics of um, contributing small amounts over time, the, you know, the, the time value of money is very powerful, I think, for college kids. Um, even retirement questions, uh, you know, when can I start? You know, how do I, what is a 401k? You know, they've heard about these benefits as they're job searching and they're really not very clear on what they are. So a lot of those basics seem to come up. Um, they also have questions about debt, of course. Um, student loan debt is weighing on them very heavily. Um, so they're kind of trying to figure out what do I do? Do I try to pay that off first and then go for investing? I think the timing and sort of the priorities, kind of the to-do list is, is weighing heavily on them as well. I'm glad you mentioned the student debt because the, the mounting student debt in this country continues to get headlines and rightfully so. And I'm curious what catches your attention when you're reading the news? Um, we had talked recently on our show about the, uh, the headline, 7 million Americans are 90 days late on their car payments. Um, are there things that you've seen in the news over the last six months or so that, make, that give you pause, that give you genuine concern above and beyond the basics of people trying to learn how to handle their financial lives. Are there things that you've seen that make you think on a macro level, wow, this is pretty bad? Yeah, you know, the student loan debt is certainly an issue, and, and it's certainly something that we've got to address in this country. 
I would say what really, but those, those people are relatively young, right? They've got time in their horizon to uh, get that debt paid off, hopefully begin saving aggressively. I get more concerned about statistics showing the lack of emergency savings for you know, emergency expenses. When we're talking about people in their 50s and 60s that don't have more than a few thousand dollars saved. Um, you're talking about, you know, median net worth, you know, and, you know, maybe less than $100,000 for folks in their 50s and 60s. That concerns me. Those folks, the clock is running out for those folks. They can't get any retirement loans. They can't get any um, financial assistance, um, for the most part, to live perhaps another 30 years of their life. So I do, I do get concerned when I look at savings rates uh, for particularly middle-aged and older folks. I'm going to give you the uh, mythical magic wand. You get to make one financial change in the world. It could be, it could be anything. It could be uh, a way to reduce that. It could be a way to um, make it mandatory that anyone who starts a job automatically contributes to their 401k. What's, what's, the, what's the wish that you grant for America and the world in yeah, terms of I, finance. I do think that the retirement accounts that we have, we need to we need to revisit those. A lot of people don't have four hundred one ks. They don't have four hundred three bs. They're, um, you know, they they may have them, um, but maybe they're also looking at what can I do on the side, the the side gig economy. I would love to see IRAs um, contribution rate limits increased. Um, I would love to see more opportunities for the self-employed to contribute at even higher rates. Um, I would love to see the rate for 401k increased. Um, but I do think if you don't have a 401k, maybe you work for a small company that doesn't offer it, and you're looking at an IRA, a maximum of six or $7,000 per year, that's not going to get you where you need to go. So increasing those would be, I think, one, one thing on my wish list. Um, of course, education. I mean, gosh, you think about when I started in this, we were in the recession, right? And there were people who were just dealing with, um, you know, a lot of the, the real estate fallout and, and issues there. And it was so exciting because a few years after that, we actually started talking about education in schools and colleges. It was like everybody was a little motivated now to think about, um, wow, maybe we do need to educate people about personal finance. And now we've seen that die off and we're not having that conversation anymore. We have very short memories as Americans. And so revisiting that conversation about education, um, I think is key. I would love to see it mandatory in, in every high school. I would love to see it incorporated in more colleges, but I think specifically in high school, if we could have all 50 states require at least six months of personal finance education in the curriculum, not make it optional, not give them a choice to make it a little two-week, you know, addendum on an economics class or right. a math class. I think that would go a long way. If you haven't already checked out the Money Girl podcast, you absolutely should. It is available everywhere you find podcasts. Laura Adams, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Chris. This was it's, great. It's been my pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, although we didn't really talk about stocks. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you on Monday. Monday.